Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Today on the show, we're taking a look at the news, the weird, wonderful and upcoming. Plus, we're talking to Grace Brown from Andromeda and the Map Velocity Program. Plus, we talk to Josie Dean about the tragic art of shitposting. So we wanted to kick the show off with a little bit of a chat. How's your week in tech been? Um, Lily, how's your week in tech been? Hey, folks. Yeah, um, my, my week in tech has been a fairly interesting one. I've been switching some of my stuff over to to Apple. I've been an Android user for a really long time, so this has been a bit of a change for me. It could definitely be a huge change. Have you had any major catastrophes on the way, or is it so far so good? So far so good. Well, except for the bit where I tried to import my contacts. There's this, this app that lets you import them, and it's imported everything three times, so I'm going to have to go clean that up. I don't really know how that happened. No. Look, you know what? I'm, I've been an Apple user for one million years, and I've had my contacts are in there twice. So everything in my contact book. And you just live that way? Up. I just live that way. That's wild. It seems to happen every time. I transfer a device over, so you know we're just living with it, really. Yeah. No, I um, I don't really know uh, what I'm gonna do with the rest of the data that I've got there, and whether I'm planning to transfer all of it over. Anyway, it's been a pretty interesting ride. Oh, I'm trying to get used to everything. Well, speaking of interesting rides, we wanted to have a quick look at the news. Um, Our Prime Minister has been having some chats about being an energy superpower. Yeah, that's... um, (laughs) This was uh, first up on our list. So Australia... uh, Albanese said that Australia needs to become a renewable energy superpower, which is a massive change for the government um, this time around. Uh, It's kind of nice to have a government that's actually saying these things. Mm. I really hope that they follow them up with some action. Anyway, Albanese was giving an address at the Sydney Energy Forum yesterday and said, you know, we need to act. So he's trying to, you know, he's there and trying to promote renewable energy development. And that's going to move in concert with a new climate change bill that the Labor government's introducing next month, which will hopefully actually do something, TM, about the climate crisis. So this is great news. Um, But also, uh, in response to that, a lot of industry and research agencies have said that the national grid, honestly, like, like it needs a serious upgrade. I mean, we know this, Mm. but it needs a serious upgrade. We need more generation and storage projects. And pretty much it's nice to see governments talking the talk Mm -hmm. instead of pretending super hard that the climate crisis isn't happening and that they have nothing to do with it. But anyway, let's hope that they get more substantial policies in place to support their statements. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree on that front. Um, You know, taking a little bit of a look slightly more broadly, obviously Roe v. Wade in the USA has um, been dominating headlines for a long time and uh, all the last few weeks anyway, and for very good reason. And one of the main issues behind it is because of how, I guess, kind of literally and expansively um, USA-based businesses and legislators are prepared to take it. So um, we spotted this tweet thread and um, we might tweet it uh, a little bit later on after the show so that our listeners can have a bit of a look at it. But um, essentially, the tweet thread starts, Dear Walgreens, I received this package today a week after purchasing a pregnancy test at your store. I was asked to take the test by my doctor despite having no fallopian tubes. Now, this package contained formula and bottles. 
for like, like baby formula, baby formula and bottles for someone who is non-fertile was doing one of those. Um, you know, I'm about to have an X-ray. I need to have a test just to rule it out, just yeah. to whatever tick a box. Yeah, and um, these huge brands are sending out baby packs. This what the actual hell? So um, this this tweet is uh, the handle is uh, melon colon sex. Um, they've said that they suspect it's actually come from um, their loyalty card program. Oh. So they've swiped the purchase through to get their points, and because it's come up as a pregnancy test, they're like, "Hey, have babies." That's wild. How can you just assume that taking the test means that you're automatically wild? I know. Not not to mention the the amount of heartbreak that can come with people who are, you know, trying really hard. And this is probably just, yeah, just going to be really upsetting for a lot of people as well. Mm -hmm. It's reminding me of that, um, oh, it was a classic case, I think in 2006, super early on where um, some parents of a teenager who was pregnant were notified that she was pregnant by Target, the chain in the United States, because they started sending her all of these ads for pregnancy-related stuff because they had figured it out before she had told her parents that it was happening. It's just wild. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, I guess aside from the obvious legislative medical concerns, there's now a whole lot of personal feelings and good vibes going into systems and processes that should never even be a factor. So that's more than a little bit alarming. Um, And sort of coming across from um, alarming into, well, still kind of alarming, but a little bit funny. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Lily, would you like to tell us about this entertaining one? There was an article in Vice last week, and this was my favourite piece of news, the favourite thing that I read last week, Um, although it is also kind of sad. Um, So there was a woman, and it's just been uncovered, the scale of this massive hoax on Wikipedia that this woman in China has perpetrated, where she's uploaded... Um, not not just uploaded, but has written a bunch of articles about Russian history, Russian medieval history in particular, which you think that's quite niche, which is kind of how she got away with it for quite some time. She's written nearly 300 articles. One of them was even about as long as like the novel, The Great Gatsby, <gasps> quite substantial ones. And she's she's been able to work it so that a lot of them have got references and things in there that make it look incredibly legitimate. Um, one of the articles was so well written that it was selected to be the Wikipedia article, like featured article of the day in Chinese language Wikipedia. And it's just like, it's super extensive. And um, the only reason it got uncovered was because there was a novelist who was doing some research about Russian history for a novel he was writing, found some of the articles, thought, this sounds amazing, really good, want to know how that happens, and dug into it more and found out that pretty much just all of the references were bogus. And it uncovered this massive network of articles and accounts and sock puppet accounts and so on that had been used to support all of this stuff going back a couple hundred, uh, couple hundred, a couple years. Mm. Um, it's just this uh, woman who was bored at home. <laughs> yeah, at the time. And pretty extensive. Just, I mean, I'm, I'm about as impressed as I am disappointed. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Oh, it's completely wild. Like, I think, you know, ah, Wikipedia is just such a magnificent concept in theory. And, um, Oh, yeah, but no. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's just marvellous. Well, speaking of fresh hell, um, 
a fresh hell for the overworked, Japan has, now has nap boxes for officers. So if you've ever felt the need to sleep upright... Upright. Upright, yeah. Um, a recent study by the Japanese government has, of course, found that the country's really you know, strict and rigid office culture means that nearly a quarter of companies require employees to work more than 80 hours of overtime a month. Like, what? This is horrific hours. We, we all know that, you know, Japan's got this culture, but, you know, holy hell. Yeah. Um, and they're now finding, of course, those unavoidable physical and mental implications is that, you know, they've got a real issue with people sleeping and having naps in the toilets and stuff like that. Mm. Um Obviously, hygiene issues, obviously accessibility issues. I mean, but the core issue, of course, being an overwork culture and an expectation to be in the office. Um, you know, feel free to turn your dystopian hell meter up to 11 because these nap boxes are com- coming. They basically are giving people a glorified upright cat bed with a door to nap in instead. They are like... Um, you know those like six foot tall high school lockers with yeah. doors on them, kind of like that, but a bit more stylish and with padding in them. I'm claustrophobic just hearing that yeah. description. That's that's wild. Also upright, really? Yeah, upright. So it's like stand up, get cozy, and zonk out. Wow. Because you know comfort, obviously not solving the wrong problem there. Big time. Yeah. Oh, yep. wow. Triple R. Talk about hugging robots and things. Lily, tell us more. Yeah, so on the line with us tonight, we have Grace Brown, who is part of the Map Velocity program out of Melbourne, the University of Melbourne. Um, And Grace is also the founder of Andromeda, which was spun out from the Melbourne Space Program, which I'm super excited to hear more about. Um, Andromeda is a team of engineers that are building a social humanoid robot that is designed to improve the well-being of residents in aged care. So here tonight to talk to us about the Map Velocity Program, as well as about Andromeda and what Andromeda does, um, we have Grace Brown on the line with us. Welcome to the show, Grace. Hi. Hi. Thank you. That was a very accurate description of what we do. You think we get a bit wrong, but that was very accurate. Oh, really? Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, but you're the you're probably the one who can give us the most accurate description of um, of what's going on. And let's start off with the Map Velocity program. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about what the program is? Yeah, no. So the Map Velocity program is a pre accelerator. Um, that's run out of um, the Melbourne University's um, Melbourne Connect building. And it's for very, very early stage startups who are looking to sort of, to either have like a concept or an idea that they want to basically build into a startup and need a bit of guidance or help getting there. Yeah. Oh, that's so. great. So um, what did the Map Velocity program help you to do? Yeah. So I think I was... Um, so, 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 so I've obviously been doing Abby, who's um, a companion robot, um, and I think that was started as a passion project along the side of my studies. But I think when when my co-founder and I decided to start up, um, we both of us come from an engineering background. We really had no idea really how to get started, what it really meant to make it a startup or build position it from a student project to a business. So the map velocity runs through a lot of foundational um, sort of startup concepts like uh, product market fit, product solution fit, um, go-to-market strategy, and all of these concepts I think that um, I, a lot of builders like myself don't um, maybe don't off the top of their head. But, um, but, yeah, they run through all of the very foundational concepts with you of what, it means, what to do to really start a startup. Yeah. 
That sounds super exciting. So um, for our listeners at home, we wanted to um, just let people know if they're actually interested or they're doing something with it, um, there's an event coming up, which is a Map Velocity Ask Me Anything, which is on the 28th of July, 5pm, and also on the 10th of August at 12pm. It's an online event, and you can just hop on Eventbrite and do a little bit of a search for the Map Velocity program, or you can also visit uh, the website, themap.co forward slash program programs forward slash velocity. Um, now, Grace, um, I guess, what, what did you specifically need to do in order to really apply and really get that going? What do you think really stood out for you? Um, in terms of, uh, I think, um, I think it's mostly just um, having strong conviction early on, on what you're trying to build in um, something that you really, really want to bring to life and believe that you're really solving a problem for people. Um, so I think, you know, a pre-accelerator, they understand that your ideas and your concepts, there might be a lot of, like, holes that they can poke in in your ideas at that stage. But the whole point of the accelerator is to that. And so as long as they can see that you're solving a real problem, um, they're going to uh, do their best to help you um, reach that solution. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you get much visibility on the other, um, I guess, innovations or technologies that are also within the program, sort of alongside you? Yeah, yeah, no, so we, it, runs as a, it runs as a whole cohort. So it's almost like, like I've just finished my undergraduate degree and um, the, the way the programs run is exactly like a uni degree. Like you have your uh, course, or like you have the, the topics that you cover um, and you cover them in um, uh, like Zoom calls together or in person if, um, if, uh, if, if we're not in lockdown. And... Yeah, and so, so it was, um, yeah, we got to see all the other startups and work very, very closely with them, and quite a few of us became really close as well. We work in, like, specific clusters, and we just sort of help each other, like, you know, because we're all going through the same thing. So, um, it, yeah, it, it makes it a lot less of a lonely journey, yeah. Oh, that's excellent. I know that you really do need that kind of support as a cohort when you're getting started in these kinds of things. So it's great that this exists to give people these skills. Um, so the program uh, applications, are they're open now, I believe. Um, and uh, it's uh, you can find out more about that at themap.co slash program slash velocity. And I'll repeat that again at the end of the show. Um, but what I wanted to know a bit more about from you, Grace, was more about Andromeda's mission and your startup itself and how you've built it out. Because I, I was checking out Abby the Robot's Instagram earlier today. Super cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So what, what inspired you to, to build this robot? Like, what's the program about? Where did it come from? Yeah, no, I mean, I think lots of factors came into uh, the, that, that helped inspire me to build Abby. Um, ultimately, the idea when I was in um, the very first lockdown in 2020 in Melbourne, and, um, it, you know, all my classes were online, all my housemates had moved out, they'd gone back overseas. Um, and so I think um, that I was in a state where I was at the very low <laughs> And so watching lots of Disney movies, and so I was actually just wanting, I wanted to keep myself busy, and I thought, what better to keep myself busy with than building a robot who can keep me company <laughs> <laughs> that yeah no that's definitely a, a step up from sourdough for sure <laughs> yeah 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 i guess so yeah lots of people yeah yeah so um from from what i've read about um the robot uh you are hoping to put that into aged care scenarios in particular what's the motivation with that <laughs> Yeah, so obviously at the core of it, um, she was designed to help sort of alleviate feelings of loneliness. And so when I was exploring how to really 
um, get get Abby out there. Um, I realize the probably the best demographics to work with and to test with are Australia's loneliest demographics, which are residents facilities. And so, um, and we were seeing fine as well, like humanoid robots in Japan and Germany were taking off and they were really help alleviating the burden of um, all of the healthcare systems that were sort of during COVID. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like a very, at least internationally, they demonstrated a lot of success, so it seemed like a very, um, it seemed like a very relatively obvious first step as well. Yeah, so I guess that's how it, yeah, that's how we got to that decision. Fantastic. So um, I was wondering if you, um, you know, took any inspiration or um, have sort of checked out, you know, Paro, the robotic seal, who's um, doing that sort of love and hugs for aged care residents as well. Have there been any sort of learnings from that? Yeah, no. So I think um, that that actually played a lot in our decision as well. Um, We saw that these companion robots, um, like robotic dogs, robotic seals, cats, they had huge pilot success in all these aged care facilities. And so um, my co-founder and I, we realized that, um, you know, people, elderly residents in aged care facilities, they're already, they're already more inclined to build a relationship with robotic characters. And so that was like a bridge that we didn't have to build for them. They were already there. And so we just wanted to build something that was a bit more sophisticated and more functional um, and to ho- hopefully just, inc- yeah, like, like sort of, like improve their overall well-being and stay while they're yeah while they're in aged care facilities. Yeah, great. And in terms of the development process for this, um, you know, most people have got these mental images of robots as cold, shiny metal and that kind of thing. So, how do you make a huggable yeah. robot? You know, do you have to spend hours of your workday hugging different types of materials to make the best choices? Um, yeah. So we're so we're very I guess in our development quite early. So we've only just finished our first. Prototype, the fabrication of our first prototype, um, and our first prototype was a very um, minimal exoskeleton, as you can see from um, our pictures. Um, that was that was, um, I guess, the minimum sort of structure, and, and she has the minimum functionality that you can use to define a humanoid. But looking down as as we as we progress in development, um, that's definitely something we are considering how we want her exterior look and more importantly feel. Um, so we're working with. Um, our, 3D artists to help design a future design for Abby. And we're looking at something like Baymax from Disney's Big Hero 6 where it's inflatable and soft, um, but, but it's still very much in the decision-making process. I yeah. love the sound of that. Like, oh, it sounds completely adorable, but the mental picture that's painted by, um, you know, oh, well, today I'm going in and I'm going to hug 17 different types of squishy and we're going <laughs> to... You yes. know, clean test 14 different types of fabric to make this a reality. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Oh, and you called the robot Abby. What was uh, what was the behind the choice of that name? Um, yeah, so Abby is a very terrible acronym. <laughs> so um, she referred to, uh, before she was named Abby, I think when I was picked project to lots of different academics and um, investors. I was referring to her as an autonomous bipedal humanoid robot. So a humanoid robot is just an autonomous bipedal robot. And I think I just said that about probably like 10,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the A from autonomous and the BI from bipedal and just called her Abby. Yeah. 
No, I love that. And look, to be honest, on this show, we, we cross paths with so many acronyms, some more successful than others, and I think this is um, a completely adorable one. So I absolutely love it. Um, I guess one of, one of the questions um, that does pop up when you think about, you know, putting robots into caregiving scenarios is, um, I guess, the perceived ethics behind it. Obviously, they're not replacing um, nurses or trained medical care. Is it really more um, providing support? support for, I guess, for that emotional and mental load? Yeah, no, so it's, um, at least what we found, like, especially, what, what COVID's really demonstrated is, like, elderly residents and aged care facilities, most of them, when they have an outbreak, they're all completely isolated on in their rooms. Um, on top of that, like, the, the, the aged care facilities are heavily understaffed, and they just can't meet the needs of all the residents. And so, although some people might think it sounds a little bit undignified to, you know, put a put a hugging robot in front of some elderly residents, it's actually like it's much better than the, the, what what they currently have. And and, and yeah, and in terms of like thing as well, it's definitely not meant to replace their job. More so, it's meant to supplement um, and help them with their work. So right now, a lot of nurses are hammered every day with very menial things um, that don't re- that don't really need their attention. So by delegating those tasks to Abby, like just bringing them water or just a towel or little things, um, the, the nurses can then actually focus on properly caring for the patient and what they're actually, that, that's their job to do. That's yeah, that's that's really good to know. And I suppose the the interesting thing is also there that a lot of people don't think about um, older generations as tech innovators or the most um, tech accepting group of people. Um, but what have your experiences been when you've been talking to people where you've been exploring this idea, doing that kind of research? When you're te- when you're talking to people who will be your your target um, audience. Yeah, no, so it's, um, that definitely comes up a lot, and we've had to change things here and there that I guess on my co and I didn't account for. Like, we've changed, like, her speakers to make them relatively loud because a lot of the residents are quite um, uh, are deaf in at least in one year. Um, we've changed, like, the way Abby speaks. Um, but at the end of the day, like, they're not actually um, working with tech or actually doing anything with tech. What we're trying to do is build this robotic character that is, like, the way you would interact with her is not how you would interact with technology, but more of a person. So that's what we're really trying to work towards. And so, so, so yeah, so that's, um, I guess that's the end goal with, um, or end goal with this, this demographic, yeah. Awesome. And I know so much of these questions that we ask can be, how long is a piece of string? Um, <laughs> but do, do you have a bit of a vision on um, when Abby might be out and about hugging people in care homes? Well, she's actually already in um, two aged care facilities. So we're currently working with two aged care facilities in Melbourne who are just helping us with um, sort of, I guess, getting early user feedback. So, like, because right now so many of the de- so many design choices are still up in the air, and so that early feedback really helps narrow down how we need to design or build um, different subsystems. So she's out there, but I think, um, but we're hoping that within like 18 months that we'll have like a very, like a consumer-grade um, humanoid product that will be hopefully distributed across all age care facilities in Australia. <laughs> That's yeah. super, super exciting. So um, whereabouts can people go to, you know, learn more about what you're doing or um, follow Abby's journey? Um, so I think we're most, 
we're most active probably on Instagram or LinkedIn. We should actually get a bit better at sharing what we're doing. Yeah. Um, we try our best. Um, but, yeah, so I, I also make a few, like, random YouTube videos on just, like, her build process, um, just, like, what, what, what it really looks like behind the scenes of how we're actually building Abby as well. So, um, yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, and, yeah, and the YouTube videos if you like that. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. So um, so this evening we've been talking to uh, Grace Brown, the CEO and co-founder of Andromeda and their very cool bit of technology called Abby, which has come from the Map Velocity program, which is you can follow on Instagram at Map uh, or possibly Twitter at Map Uni Melb. Um, and you can also find out more themap.co forward slash programs forward slash velocity. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We've been having a lovely time learning about robots that hug, Melbourne Uni, accelerator programs, all sorts of good things. Um, and we're about to find out a little bit more about the tragic art of shitposting. Yes, we are. Tonight, we have in the studio with us uh, Josie Dean, who is a translator and writer living in Nam on unceded Wurundjeri land. Um, their work has been published in various journals, including Overland, The Suburban Review, Mascara Review, and Debris Magazine. And they are here tonight to talk to us about an event that they're doing at the Melbourne Free University on July 21st, which uh, is tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what time is. Anyway, someone who does know what things are is Josie. Welcome to the studio, Josie. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us, um, tell us more about the tragic art of shitposting. What's, what will people be learning at this session? It's really divided into three parts. The first is a general history of shitposting, starting from, like, I guess, what you would call the prehistory of shitposting. There's a... There's a writer named uh, Georges-Louis Borges that had an essay, uh, like, in the 40s, I believe, who wrote about how, I guess, certain art forms create their own precedents. So when we come talk about posting, for example, um, I can, like, I'm going to be making reference to, like, you know, Martin Luther and stuff like that, literally, like, mm. nailing various theses, posting to a wall, you know, the early form of a forum post or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, I was just going to say, that's one of the interesting things. We might think of shitposting really just in the context of Twitter. Yeah, I'm going to shitpost myself to 10,000 followers, but it's so much bigger than that. Mm. And, and such a richer history, I guess, too. Definitely, yeah. And it's that richer history and I guess the potentials in it that I want to talk about. You yeah. Know, the first part is about the history of shitposting. The second is about... I guess the philosophy for most of a bit, for a, more of a better term. Like, most people refer to Dada when talking about shitposting because it's like, you know, the easiest and most sort of accessible and I guess uh, theorized about when it comes to that form of like deliberately obfuscatory and, for want of a better term, like shitposting like, style mm. that exists and that we have a precedent for. Um, I'm going to be arguing that that's like basic, fundamentally different in the era of like a globalized, uh, a globalized electronic, uh, like digital economy, essentially. 
Well, we, I mean, we do talk a lot about how, um, you know, a lot of the modern, like any kind of absurdism really, you know, comes from these tragic events, right? Mm. You know, we have, uh, say, Dada and surrealism coming out of the Great War. Is shitposting the only possible response that we've got to the slow motion tragedies that we're facing at the moment? I think shitposting arises precisely because there are multiple possibilities in responding to it. Like... Shitposting on Twitter, I will argue, is an attempt to destitute language. It's an attempt to make it inoperable. It's like to stop it working in the context of Twitter, because on a fundamental level, it's engaging with the medium of Twitter and the way people like and the way people use Twitter and the way Twitter is used by, for example, like powerful figures and stuff like that. Mm. You know, brands being able to like pose as quirky, you know, quirky uwu celebrities in order to, like, you know, hawk uh, products to you, as well as, um, you know, billionaires like Elon Musk pretending to be, like, an epic an epic shitlord online. <laughs> oh, no, it's cringe. Yeah. <laughs> Elon <laughs> Musk is kind of, like, the, like, you know, it's precisely because Elon Musk exists and, you know, does what he does that shitposting exists and is, you know, more effective than, than that. Is there any good corporate ship ship posting, or is that against the definition of ship posting? Like, does it have to be grassroots? Or, and you know, I feel like to me, a lot of the corporate attempts to do this are all Steve Buscemi in the mu music band shirt. Like, how do you do, fellow kids? Kind of stuff. <laughs> Classic um, of the genre. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like, is that that, or you know, is that is the only true corporate ship posting the stuff that brands only believe in earnest, like? The, the, the metaverse is a revolutionary idea or something. Oh, God. The, the, the pain nexus. Have you seen that tweet? The torment nexus. The torment nexus, yeah. Yes. <laughs> From hit book, Don't Invent the Torment Nexus. Yes. Um, one of the concepts I'll be referring to is, is called elective affinity. It's basically, it's basically how if two, I guess, autonomous structures have relatively similar operating logics... You know, it becomes it's 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 obvious, sort of like it becomes more obvious than they overlap in specific ways that you know reflect the similarities that uh, between the two structures. So, like as you said or asked, uh, I don't like there is a, a fundamental like uh, like dis dissonance between like what corporate shit posting I guess represents and for mon for want of a better term like. Homegrown shit posting. <laughs> Love but, a good homegrown shit posting. And the, on the same, by the same token, like you know, when we talk of organic shit posting, <laughs> we're also talking about things like you know, like alt right Nazis and stuff like that. You know, people mm. that use shit posting in order to destitute the space of like online mm. speech in a way that is like that they. I don't know. I don't want to like, but, uh, like, I don't want to say. I don't want to like invoke nihilism because like that's it seems like such a moralistic concept, but like using it in order to aestheticize that kind of space in a way that like lends itself to I guess the the logics of you know white supremacist uh, colonial uh, colonialism and stuff like that. And I guess that, that that also brings up a question that I had for you, which was about the difference between trolling and shitposting, because mm. that is something, the word trolling comes up in the the sort of the blurb for your presentation yeah. tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I wondered if there is a difference. Um, are they synonyms? Is trolling a term that we're trying to reclaim? Or is trolling one of, you know, is it malicious? Is it a punch-down thing? And shitposting is supposed to be a punch-up thing? Uh-huh. I don't think there's an easy binary uh, between the two. Like, mm. I think... Like, I don't want to say that all shitposting is trolling, but not all trolling is shitposting. <laughs> yeah. It, mm. uh, in my talk, I guess, I want to emphasize shitposting as something that fundamentally engages with the logic of language, whereas trolling, I guess, engages with the logic of subjects and, you know, discourse. So I guess, in, the, in like, as I said before, like, all, etc., etc., like, that language necessarily, like, informs how, you know, discourse and subjects are constructed online, specific, like, especially. Uh, I don't think it starts with... I don't think it goes the other way, or it's less like, or it's like less likely to go the other way, or it's you know weirder to talk about it in that sense. But then again, like you know, it, there's a kind of interpolation there. You know, you you point to someone and they become subjects immediately, as opposed to just like being formed out of language. Uh, For sure, and I, and I guess there's that thing. Um you know, between trolling and shitposting, so much of trolling, well, the intent behind trolling is to actually derail, and whether it's derailing a conversation, derailing a nuanced debate, mm. derailing a space, all that kind of stuff, where shitposting mm. has so much more scope and frame to add nuance and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Again, like, I, I don't know. I don't think of it simply in terms of, like, you know, subtraction or addition. Mm. Like... You're right in that, like, when I think of shitposting, I think of, again, strategies, like, specific strategies in response to how discourse is formed online and how that discourse is informed by, like, you know, broader economic structures and broader, like, I guess, cultural signifiers and identities and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm I'm especially personally interested in LinkedIn shitposting as a subgenre of shitposting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think because just the platform and the medium makes <laughs> it so unexpected that you don't see it yeah. as often. And I wondered if you had a favorite platform for shitposting or if you feel like it's your enjoyment of it is platform neutral. <laughs> I think well like the part of that I'm arguing I guess is that shitposting is inherently tied to right like to tied to a medium. Mm. I guess that's where tragedy comes in as well, because tragedy expands with a certain de definition of medium. So, for example, on Twitter, like I, 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 I gather most of my homegrown uh, shit posting from Twitter. <laughs> well, same. <laughs> although, like, although a lot of like, I guess a lot of the research and a lot of what I'm talking about in terms of the history comes from you know like old school websites like um, something awful and forums and blogs and stuff mm. like that. And how that then, I guess, coagulated into, like, I don't want to, I know, I don't want to divide into stages. That's too easy. But like, you know, then you have like, I guess, larger sites like Tumblr and others like that, and early Facebook, until you know we reach now where most of online space, online space is capitalized and monopolized by you know four big tech companies, as opposed to you know the, the sprawl of of like the early web and mm. so like when it comes to twitter again it's like there's a kind of perfection of what shit posting can do i say perfection as though like something's not going to come along that's going to make twitter look like you know relative relative calmness 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like when you have a a medium like Twitter and you have it and like its access to a whole world of information and a whole sense of like global communications and, you know, tying that to like the climate crisis, you have a global sense of the impending doom and at the same time, you know, how little power people have to affect it and how little is being done in order to prevent it and affect it, that it necessarily lends itself again an elective affinity to a broader sense of the tra- of the tragic, which I feel for... Like, tra- tragedy as a specific genre or a specific form hasn't really existed, I want to argue, for, like, a long time. And I feel like it's inevitably going to make a resurgence the more people get to the possibility of total destruction, total annihilation. Are you talking about tragedy in, like, the Shakespearean sense? Or I guess so, else? yeah. Yeah, Shakes- tragedy in, like... Tragedy in the sense of the tragic, you know, a sort of awareness of the tragic, not simply, you know, a tragedy, you know, the tragedy, Mm -hmm. you know, the unfolding tragedy of the Anthropocene, which is the unfolding tragedy of capitalism, which is the unfolding tragedy of et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's like a Matryoshka doll of tragedy. Hmm. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Now we're doom scrolling and we're not even on Twitter at the moment. (laughs) How did this happen? I tell you what, though, I still I still reckon with with LinkedIn, you know, sometimes a, a LinkedIn post will make its way onto Twitter just because of its sheer LinkedIn-edness, yes. I guess. <laughs> and it's like, is the, this the ultimate shit post? The best, like, the best, like, posts I think I've seen are, are people sourcing that kind of, like, those kind of, like, things. Like when, um, I don't know, the whole unfolding the whole unfolding, like, internet wife guy phenomenon Mm -hmm. and, you know, how people, like, see photos of, like, do not contact my wife spray-painted on, like, a garage door (laughs) and turning that into a whole, like, shorthand of, you know, internet wife guy, you know, uh, internet wife guy sort of, like, relations and stuff like that. Love it. It's fascinating. Like, I don't know, I find the internet infinitely fascinating. Absolutely. Well, I guess um, obviously there's a, a long history of, you know, shit posting, as you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier on on the show. Um, do we think that the complete extrapolation of Simpsons memes in relation to <laughs> shit posting is just going to become its own um, historical marker in, in times to come? One of the pieces of research that I did for this was for Shannon Knoll memes, specifically <laughs> oh, Shannon yes. Knoll shit posting. <laughs> And it's, like, relation to, Australia, quote-unquote, Australian identity. Nice. So, like, I know when you have something as, like, broad and as rich as The Simpsons, I feel like you could, like, be coming back to the well for, like, years and years. The thing is, though, I've been, you know, I've been posting Simpsons shit posts for a while mm-hmm. in various contexts, but it's come to a point where at work there are people who don't recognise the references anymore, and I wonder if we just age out of some of that at I'm, some point. I'm part of a Simpsons shit posting group, and... It's so arcane, the levels of, like, shitposting that people have reached, where, like, you have to have, like, a f- like a in-depth or, like, a fairly rigorous knowledge of Sh- Simpsons references and, like, the way that people have combined and remixed them mm. into, like, the, you know, and the formats of given shitposts. It's, like, a whole artistic... It's a whole artistic process in itself. Yeah. Yeah. And- 
There's kind of like your entry-level steamed hams, but it goes yeah. down from there. Well, I'm thinking of specifically, I have like in mind a given shit post, which was like, you know those, um, you know those sort of earnest, uh, again, this is sort of like, I guess what I'll be discussing, the difference between, you know, a shit post and an earnest post. Mm. But it was like an earnest post of like, hey, don't, uh, don't like bend your legs and like literally talk down to shorter people. Instead, just stand up and talk to them normally, you know. And the internet sort of like, it's the, that kind of earnest post that a certain like, I guess, for like a whole sort of like sphere of the internet exists to like, like dunk on mercilessly. Even like, I don't know. I don't want to divide it like simply between politics because like you know, it's a kind of shallow. Hey, just be nice to to people. That like is kind of dissected across the board, mm. and is a kind of like. Again, like a whole economy of like internet, like I guess observance and internet uh, engagement, which exists to to like criticize and make fun of these uh, these earnest posts. In the same way, there exists you know the quiet you know silence brand meme again in response to like brand Twitter mm. because people can tell that you know what brand Twitter is doing insofar as it's trying to like jump on an affect of of shit posting in order to sell product again. So with this given image, eventually, you know, to begin with, people took it and just like, you know, added, it was still recognizable. Like the sort of, I guess, talking of it in terms of a joke, like you had the setup and you have the punchline and people like took the setup and changed it or took the punchline and changed it, you know, chain. Uh, and then, but it eventually got to the state where there was like a a long sort of centipede-like creature, like <laughs> spreading across the, the the image macro, and instead of like like spoken language, there was like literally just it going whoo, <laughs> and yeah, and like there was a kind of there was like a, a, a what's the word recursive effect on one of the person's faces, just like a face and then a smaller face and then it, like just like again dada of a form. And like, but like, fascinating to sort of like engage precisely because a lot of people would look at it and say, you know, that's pointless. There's nothing like, there's meaningless. We there's nothing to extract here, as opposed to like the meaningless being the meaninglessness being the point and like the space yeah. that is established by shit posting and, and that's instantly like, recognizable in its own way. Yeah, yeah. exactly, mm. absolutely. Um, so at the moment we are talking to Josie Dean about the tragic art of shit posting, which is on uh, tomorrow night at Melbourne Free University. So we have got so you can uh, get tickets and bits and pieces melbourne-free-university.org or you know as we love to do it, get on the Google machine. Uh, Six thirty to eight pm. The old Upstairs, one three four Ligon Street, East Brunswick. This has been an absolute hoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I need to up my shit post game dramatically. <laughs> I think I'm, I've gotten a bit lazy with the old uh, shit post. But thank you so much for coming in and joining us this evening. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolute blast. Triple R. 
Oh, gosh, this has been an absolute hoot of a show. Um, but first of all, we wanted to cover off a few little items that are coming up. So um, I wanted to let you all know that High Score, which is a two-day conference around composition and sound art for games, it is back in 2022. Now, while it is aimed at, you know, sound designers and composers, if you're into your gaming, if you're into your tunes, if you are into a combination of all of the above, get along to it. It's absolutely rad. You get to get up close and personal with um, composers working on some of the coolest stuff out there. You get to learn how it all happens. It is, um, cannot recommend highly enough. So um, it's going to be a combination this year of hybrid in-person and live stream, uh, chockers with keynotes, panels, feedback sessions and more. First and 2nd of October as part of Melbourne International Games Week. Um, Sign up for Ye Olde e-newsletter on their website and um, get your tickets when they come out. Speaking of Games Week, Melbourne International Games Week is happening again and Expressions of Interest are open to stage an event as part of Games Week. So it is running this year from Sunday, uh, no, Saturday the 1st, I don't know how time works, Saturday the 1st to Sunday the 9th of October 2022. So if you are doing something cool and you want to be part of their program, you can go to gamesweek.melbourne and get your expression of interest in. Yeah, I reckon there'll be some cool companies doing some cool things. So get on it, folk. Um, and good old PAX Australia. So that's on on the 7th to the 9th of October at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. As in very typical PAX form, the three-day badges have already sold out. So if you're a little bit of a PAX hound, I suggest you get on it. It'd be very cool people exhibiting there. So, yeah. Mm, be- it's always a hoot. Yeah, get along and check that out. Um, In news unrelated to Games Week and affiliated events... (laughs) (laughs) What? We're going to talk about something, not games? (laughs) I know. Um, But Code Like a Girl, who have been running around the traps for a long time now, have got an info session on um, pretty soon, on August the 4th, actually... Um, they have scholarships available for becoming a web developer. So if you are keen to get into web development as a career, as a lot of us are, it's very uh, remote work friendly kind of line of work. Um, but if you're not, if you want to do that, you're unsure where to begin, um, Code Like a Girl has got you covered. You can come along to their event on August the 4th, which is free. It is on Zoom. Um and you can hear about all of their career track program stuff. Um, so they, they've put that on to help uh, build skills and knowledge to become a web and an app developer. You can register for that at codelikeagirl.com slash what's dash on. So worth it. Do it. Do it, do it. <laughs> so um, thank you so much to um, my co-cahoots, <laughs> Lily and Joe tonight. Um, and, um, you know, Joe has been an absolute legend tonight. We kind of came in and it looked like some small mice and raccoons had been flinging the cables around and some things weren't attached that should have been attached, but she got us to air and um, turned it into an absolute doozy of a show. So thank you especially to Joe for holding down the fort. Also wanted to throw a massive thank you to our guests, uh, Grace Brown, talking all things Huggable Robot, Robot and the Maps Velocity Program, and Josie Dean about the fine art of shitposting. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.